Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of chatting once again with Barney Dicker. Hello, Barney. Hello, Tom. Nice to be back on again. So you emailed me a number of really quite provocative and interesting topics, but I wanted to start with you have been mm-hmm. back to your games club, but also in your area there appears to also be a wargaming club as well. Can you describe a little bit about this promised land in which you live? Sure. Okay. Okay. So we live about a minute's walk away from a Roman uh, barracks, the remains of a Roman barracks, still not, still not, at, you know, not active anymore. And my daughter goes to school on the on the edge of that site and it's a a simple but kind of it's a, you know it's a simply maintained roman ruin and there are two kind of museum points that you can go and look around and then some other open air bits and bobs so i can walk up there walk through the 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 roman remains down the hill and then i get to a nice little cafe cake place mm-hmm. where every monday there's a board game club and it's free uh, as far as the club is concerned. You usually buy a drink or so, two or, and eat something. And there can be 20 people there, maybe more. Sometimes it's seven or something like that. But there's always always one or two people who turn up with a couple of crates of different games. And that's that's really nice. Unfortunately, it's on a Monday, which is really bad for me as as a parent and, mm. and all of that so whenever i get the chance and i can keep my eyes open long enough i go down and play and so like i said in my in my email i think i've been about three or four times mm. and so that and they they tend to be more board game orientated mm-hmm. the 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 game shop in town has a god what are they called they're called lock-up rooms no what are they escape rooms (laughs) escape rooms they've got so they've got a shop a really well-stocked shop which has kind of got role-play games on the right hand side Mm -hmm. and board games on the left with some miniatures painted or otherwise or just in blister packs here and there um and then but in the building next to it, they've got their escape room upstairs. And they also have then on the same ground floor, the street level, they also have a, a gaming room. Mm. And how does, I've, I've not really managed to, to infiltrate that group yet because <laughs> it's always a question then of time as well. Certainly. Um, and so I, but I know that maybe they have a, a magic evening once mm-hmm. a week. They have a kind of, hobby painting mm-hmm. evening evening uh once a week at the weekends it kind of revolves so maybe it's war gaming once a month board gaming once a month role play games mm. and then maybe pokemon or something like that and um there was the the, the city had a had a city festival um and on saturday night there was there was a, a, a stage set up in the nearby square and then there was also it was also the board game evening, so hmm. they were kind of sitting outside and playing. And then the other night, I was coming home from something in town, and some people had set up X Wing and Infinity outside hmm. in the street. Um, and um, and I stopped for a little quick little chat, <laughs> um, and and it was nice, you know, really nice big tables, hmm. happy as Larry, everyone out in the good weather. Yeah, so so that's. That was that that that's good. That's that's really good, and I'm really I'm really keen to get down there eventually. Um, just to I think I need to kind of turn up and be a bit of a wallflower, or mm. whatever you might call it. Certainly, and and just see who's playing what. The blueprint for a successful game store. When we still lived in the UK, my wife frequented a, a cloth craft store that was basically, I guess, a quilting store, and the owner became mm. quite friendly and actually offered the store to my wife. I think for about thirty thousand mm. pounds which we seriously considered at the time. And I've always regretted mm-hmm. that I never, you know, went in because the model tends to be, with quilting stores at least, that the husband runs the books and the wife runs the store, but here's the critical thing. In order for these stores to be successful, and the same is exactly true with a game store, you need to allocate mm-hmm. a certain amount of floor space for play. And you need to, mm-hmm. you know, teach classes perhaps, but also just allow a certain amount of the space for play. And the successful game stores will typically have a ratio 
of about 30% to 50% play area to sales space. And that is mm. really important. Now, Games mm. Workshop has tried to formalize this and play with the numbers and tried to reduce it and put more stock on the shelves and these kind of things. And I think with Games Workshop, you're dealing with, you know, cocaine or heroin, right? People are coming in very specifically. <laughs> but for yeah. more generalist game stores, the space to play is really critical. And I find this all over the world, Australia, the UK, all parts of the US, that when I find a successful game store, it will always have a play area and it will always yeah. have a roster of, as you say, evenings. And this translates yeah. internationally very well because it means that it's, a, as mm-hmm. you find with your board game club, it's a friendly place to come and play games. And if you buy, you know, a cake or a coffee or what have you, that's an additional mm-hmm. thing. The same is true in a game store, except mm-hmm. what you're buying there is miniatures, paints, rule books, this kind of stuff too. I think the notion of a social epicenter where things are done in a kind of creative, playful fashion is really important. Now you think, you know, with these stores, this is going to be mainly, you know, children, what have you. No, actually the adults drive these stores far more than the children do through these kind of evening play sessions. Anyway, I find it fascinating. Mm. I think the, the, in terms, if you compare the shop floor to the play rooms, Mm. not the, not the escape room, um, I think it's more play area to shop area because, of course, you mm. pack the you pack the games in, and obviously they've got a storeroom underneath. Um, but I think what's interesting about that is is that that play area is not always open. So then the the ratio, the time allotment mm. is reduced, mm. but the space is always there for when when the time when Certainly. the time is needed. I th- I think another really interesting thing that I've noticed about game shops is especially getting into board games i suppose as well but mm-hmm. it's also it's also true of the miniatures that actually in the game shops the prices are pretty much the same as online mm. and and you don't tend to get that in other industries mm. uh, that as far as i can really tell you know that that it, if they've got it in stock you probably can't get it much cheaper there are some i think sometimes exceptions to that and obviously things aren't in stock but i think whatever whatever distribution model is going on there it's that, that also seems to lean a little towards really wanting people to to buy from the shops i think the companies concerned all the companies concerned but games workshop specifically made a decision in when was it probably about 2003 2004 to make sure that there were no more deep discounts online there was a kind of golden mm-hmm. period up until that point where you could get 40 plus percent off online and mm-hmm. i think it really attacked the local game stores it also attacked you know the retail business of these companies as well mm. so i think mm. the decision was made that the but that's the same with most hobbies. I mean, the same with my wife's cloth hobbies. They've all made mm-hmm. this decision. I think, you know, that time period was mm-hmm. because I remember that before then, when you could buy, you know, 30, 40% off online quite comfortably. But obviously, it's a losing proposition for all these things. And it doesn't get people into the hobbies as well. Like they, you still need a physical yeah. store for almost all this stuff to actually introduce people to these kind of things. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, I yeah. but fascinating, fascinating to read that, that, there is so much kind of outcrop of, of playfulness in your area. So I was really pleased to read <laughs> it's that. Good. <laughs> it's good. And we, I live, I live one minute from a game designer by chance. Mm. And if I walk the other way, um, a real enthusiast who, and they're both often down in the Monday club. Uh, so that's always, that's nice to have them around and wave at them as they cycle by or something like that. Um, you you often mention Realm of Chaos in mm-hmm. the podcast, and I don't know if you heard the sad news that co-author of Slaves to Darkness, Mike Brunton, died. Oh. And that there's a really nice commemorative episode of The Grognard Files, which I think is a fantastic podcast, mm-hmm. which has an interview with Mike Brunton. Mm. And it, it, was, it was meant to be part two of two episodes on white dwarf so there was already the part one as well which contains some of the interview okay. with him in there as well so um that's that's an occurrence but that the the, the grognard files 
episodes, all episodes, but perhaps this one especially is definitely worth a listen. Good to know. Good to know. It's difficult to say. I mean, I'm, I'm meeting Steve Jackson Ian Livingston in less than a month now, I think. And I'm trying to, I don't know, there's just so much stuff to talk about. It's really quite difficult. I'm trying to mm-hmm. pick how I'll wander into various topics, what it'll be like. I'm never sure whether it'll be a quick lunch or a slow lunch or what the pace of the lunch will be. And <laughs> obviously there's a certain degree of formality with regards to introductions and discussions before one gets into the kind of deep nerd topics. So sure. I will certainly listen to that. I think I'll probably even listen to it well before I leave. But yeah, the the mm. tapestry of folks that were involved with early Games Workshop, I have a small list of people to talk about, but I I really, yeah, I, I probably should listen to that and, and take notes through it. What's great about the Grognard Files is White Dwarf is kind of the the central hub of the of the podcast. And they, they, they split off from that, of course. And they're, you know, they're looking back at late seventies and eighties role play mm. games, um, of course. But the, the, the key thing of the centrality of White Dwarf is that for those, for those years, White Dwarf was catering for all of those, you know, a kind mm. of pantheistic culture of, of, of role play gaming and, and trying to unpick all of those or, yeah, shine a light on all of those, <laughs> those connections between the different, the different systems, the different authors, the different mm. projects, the editions, all of those kinds of things. Yes. It's good fun. Beautifully insistent. It's very good fun. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And in, I was, I was, I was fascinated to hear in your last one that you're now, you're now obsessed with street urchins in Victorian Britain. Mm. And, um, I, I sent you another email, didn't Certainly. I? Saying, Oh, I want to recommend Peter Aykroyd's Hawksmoor to you, mm. which isn't actually a Victorian story, but you have this kind of, uh, you have this Elizabethan story mm. and you have this eighties story <laughs> and they kind of dovetail, dovetail together. And, um, it's very weird and spooky. Mm. And, but, it, but the, what I think is great about it is that you really have that sense of London in it. And of course, Mr. Aykroyd has subsequently written a, a biography of London mm-hmm. or something like that. So I, I thought you just get that sense of the deep history of the layers of this, of this city. So, mm-hmm. and, and I got it as an audio book read by Derek Jacobi mm-hmm. and I thought he did a fantastic job. And I think I've listened to it about three times. It's good, good fun, good listening that. So you, you point out Victorian London. I, I probably. You had a question associated with whether I've given up on game design. I'm going to put that one aside and just describe what has happened in the past yeah. couple of weeks, and then we can touch on that. When I describe the, the the group that I have at work, I probably should preface this by saying I have no other gaming outlets other than this group at work. So it's really important for me that these people are doing something that they enjoy and want to participate in. And... Through the prompting primarily of Chris Abbott, I started to wonder are the Chechen, you know, is a Chechen based game a bridge too far? So I thought, okay, well, what other options mm-hmm. are available? Victorian London, zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Went and found rules in this circumstance. And then look, these are thinking people, you know, they aren't just a faceless mass of players. So I went to each of them individually and I set out to them, here are the potential rules and I could physically pass them you know, certain aspects of the rules mm-hmm. if they were interested. And mm-hmm. none of them picked Chechnya 1992. The interesting thing... That's quite a clear that, message, isn't pretty, it? That's, yeah, a, that's a clear message. <laughs> yeah. You've got to learn from these things. <laughs> Learning experience. <laughs> what was fascinating was how divided they were about the other two subject matters. And what mm-hmm. I found fascinating was that people that had done a little bit of travelling in Europe in general, but also maybe had touched on London, but really just Europe. I mean, the fellow who was most persuasive about Victorian London had just spent a month in Amsterdam, just wandering around. Mm-hmm. You know? And I thought to myself, this is really fascinating. There are two kinds of psychologies that I'm seeing here. And mm-hmm. we have decided by just a single vote that we will do zombie apocalypse. Now, what's fascinating through this is that there's very few 
miniatures that cater to zombie apocalypse, like contemporary miniatures. So I'm now mm-hmm. looking at what exists in plastic and all these other things to do that. Now, you made a more important mm-hmm. point, and I, I want to make this clear. This podcast is a separate venture to the game that I play at work. So although we're going to be doing an existing rule set with work, I found a little bag of miniatures, which I purchased mm-hmm. at a place called, uh, was it Neptune's Comics and Games? Mm-hmm. As you're a, a fan of Gorkamorka, there are, mm-hmm. and I haven't counted them yet, I need to go through and do that, there are probably about two dozen Gorkamorka orcs and about 15 Kachikan Imperial Guard with one very special, special character through that. And I mm-hmm. whipped three coats of three colors of paint on them, dipped them and put them in this bag with the view that I wanted to write a rule system about them. This is completely outside the space that we've talked about, this, you know, mm-hmm. historical and stuff like that. But I'm interested mm-hmm. in a fun skirmish game, maybe even on Hex, to <laughs> mix all possible metaphors here. Because the uh-huh. Kachikids, two of them are carrying explosives, like large explosive charge kind of pack things. And writing that into a rule system, you know, the mm-hmm. old thing was, well, you put a counter down. Well, no one's ever going to walk on the counter, so they're never going to explode. What interests mm-hmm. me is line charges, i.e. that if you cross a line, then the charge goes off in certain circumstances. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a few possibilities there. What I'm saying is, irrespective of what I play at work, Mm-hmm. I'm still going to be writing rule systems and meddling with dice rolls and card mechanics and other things in this podcast. So as a listener first and a participant yeah. second, your concern was very real, and I wanted to note that here. <laughs> but it doesn't yeah, I, mean I, I, that... I, yeah, go continue. On, go on, go on. Well, it doesn't mean that I'm giving up on the whole topic of this podcast just to lament about you know Warhammer 40k tournament players. So... I just want to make that clear that these two things are separate. And look, I'm going to talk about the game of work without question. Yeah. But yeah, these two are separate things. Did that answer your concern? It does. It does. I mean, I, I was just, you know, struck by listening to the last, what is it, kind of one and a half episodes, or, you know, the, the last two. And so having had all of this, you know, all of the the build up that you give it and the, the the progression, you kind of at one <laughs> point you just say, so I won't run it and maybe I'll just do Dungeons and Dragons. So and and I kind of deflated, I think, is the chuckled word chuckled in a in a sad way, um, a little bit because it just yeah it just seemed like oh uh, I think he might have given up, but I also couldn't believe that that would be the case. I couldn't believe it, so it was all very <laughs> tongue in cheek when I spoke of DIY game designer Tom Barbelay's Dark Knight of the Soul. That was all. I, I I knew you wouldn't have given up on it, so I wasn't too worried. Another point that I wanted to make, which Chris Abbott made when I talked to him, because Chris and I have known each other for now a decade, is I spend a good portion of my evenings in simulation space, working currently on my Noble Ape simulation. I'm writing it as a an iOS app for the mm. iPhone, and that is that takes some of my probability gaming simulation thing in my mind. So (laughs) it's not that there's a deficiency currently in this area. It's that I'm compensating an area that I can't talk about in this podcast because it's not really the topic of the podcast. So Mm. I do fulfill certain aspects of this thing through working on my simulation project as well. And that's another point that I Mm. wanted to make. So if you see it lacking, it's because a large portion of my cognitive time after hours is spent working on this thing, which is taking up some of that aspect. But I do appreciate that I have a podcast to record here, and I do appreciate that the topic of this podcast relates specifically <laughs> to creating eclectic and interesting rule systems. So, yes, I'm, I'm not going to put this thing yeah. down. Good. No, I wasn't I wasn't really worried about that. I just thought, oh, that. but the gaming group aren't going to be guinea pigs anymore. Not for now. Um, not for now. Yeah. I'm softening them up. We did talk about playing the Victorian rules after the zombie rules, and I might throw in a couple of uh, a couple of nights of Chechnya as well. You never know, but for now, it's zombies uberalis. And there was the other thing, wasn't there? There's this other point that you make that as you read the zombie apocalypse, that you were struck by how similar the rules were to yours, mm. and so so I kind of thought, oh, that's a that's an interesting, challenging thing where you where you. When when you encounter that kind of thing, you you have that moment of thinking, well, should I persevere with my thing or in the way I've been doing it? And 
and nine times out of ten, I always think it makes you think a little bit more out of the box, but even further out of the box. Mm. Um, I think it's important to show my co-workers, I mean, I have a responsibility here to show them a certain degree of diversity. And what's fascinating is reading the Victorian London rules as well. They add elements, although it was more a more a kind of squad, although this isn't the right term for Victorian London, but, you know, five miniatures per person kind of mm. interaction. But very similar again, I think, and this was part of one of your other questions, this tension between wargaming and role-playing games seems mm. to fit very comfortably currently in, in kind of skirmish games with mm. miniatures with slightly more stats and character than they would have in a war game. And this seems to be represented with a variety of different genres and settings in a number of different games currently. Let's talk a little mm. bit about your question associated with war game, role-playing game mm -hmm. tension. Can you, can you break well, so, into this? So we talked about that. We talked about this last time a little bit, and and when I and when I listened back again to some of the earlier essay, um, episodes, essays, yes, the earlier episodes <laughs> of um, <laughs> of my rules, you talk about hit locations hmm. and how that dif that's a different there's a differentiation there between role play games and skirmish games and and hit points hmm. and so. So I thought that's really interesting, and I, and I was trying to articulate last time this idea of the the, the kind of the pseudo agency of of these little miniature characters mm. as they go about their business, which seems very much reduced in the war game, simplified, and in the role play game, it's kind of Expand. at least trying to kind of map your mm. your own being. Um, and actually, listening to the Mike Brunton interview, he talks about skill progressions being a thing in role play games more than in war games mm. where where the where the stats tend to be quite fixed and and so so i thought that's quite an interesting idea have that that's that clearer sense of progression now of course when you have a, a campaign a scout a skirmish campaign and a gang then there's inserted in between each each game there's there's usually you know the downtime period where you, you might spend points or money or whatever mm. getting more skills and equipment so so it's not entirely the case but then there are always those counter restrictions aren't there where i don't know maybe there's a limit to how many champions you can have or how many one-off characters you can have or how much you can spend on mm. something and whereas in a role-play game that's that seems to be unrestricted more unrestricted and and part of the that process of playing have you played warhammer fantasy roleplay ever i have yes that has just such a beautiful and elaborate skill progression i mean that is a game which strikes me where the skill progression is so much part of the game in terms of character development in terms of like a rich kind of fractal like tapestry of, of skill progression and mm -hmm. it's interesting to I'm I'm warming myself up, I guess, to listen to the podcast that you've listened to. But they, I mean, <laughs> if if Games Workshop did anything for role playing games, it was to create a game which was so heavily based on skill progression above almost everything else in the game. Hmm. 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 Yeah, I guess I didn't when when I when I picked it up as a teenager, I didn't. I had less kind of frame of reference, I suppose. Mm. It just it just appealed. Um, <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Um, having been a long time D and D player, when I picked it up, probably age thirteen, fourteen. Firstly, the the quality of the book and the characterfulness of the just the ideas and the rules really struck me. But it was so different from D and D, and the intentional part that I saw immediately was this notion of really elaborate school progression which almost was like a choose-your-own-adventure book in itself because you're moving between skills. And like, what, what will this character evolve into with this kind of join-the-dot mm -hmm. skill progression, which seems so central in the game? So, yes, mm -hmm, anyway, mm -hmm. sorry, I, I completely derailed your train of thought. No, no, no. Um, so so I guess, you know, in this, this kind of ongoing discussion of that productive, difficult tension between the war games and the role-play games, just... Yeah, if, almost. I was thinking, oh well, I wonder if there's a there's there's a kind of a checklist, perhaps a working a working list of 
of these different aspects that one has to think about, particularly in, in, in deciding how to try and occupy that midground between the two or if you, or to be conscious of the fact that if you pick, pick one approach over another, that you are in that element skewing it more to the one than the other. I think um, there's a practical because it, nature to this thing, yeah. right? I mean, my perspective is when I came to just playing chaos, I had existing role playing rule set, which I then cut to pieces. And I wanted to describe skirmish level battles, which had a certain set of requirements. And I kind of traded it off, rolled a bunch of dice, played a bunch of games with myself, and then put it out to a broader audience. And my perspective is maybe if games are designed by committees or in groups, they would have more of the quality that you describe. But from my perspective, Mm. there was just a distinct practicality to the thing, which was take what was basically a very rough role-playing game. I mean, rough in terms of not a lot of details in between certain bits, and then put a bunch Mm -hmm. of miniatures on the table and then get this thing so it's workable with the minute. What's interesting is how looking at these different rule sets for, you know, skirmish level games, Mm. you can see some degree of just, I don't know, applied, (laughs) applied pragmatism that has to go on in these things. You don't want something Mm -hmm. that's too cognitive to, you want something that is people can return to and have fun with. And I think what's interesting with playing D and D at work versus playing just playing chaos is with D and D there was a group which was larger without question, but very different mm-hmm. in in play and returningness, if that's such a thing. Um, you know, people that came <laughs> back. And when mm-hmm. we got to the skirmish level game at work, that was the perfect mix of you know I don't want to be burdened with thinking about a character prior. I want to come for an evening eat a bit of pizza, Mm. roll some dice, work my way through a series of problems, and then, you know, pause it for another month or so, or another two weeks, and then come back and do the same thing again. And I think what's interesting Mm. is that these these are distinctly different player groups. And what is happening now, and Games Workshop has come to the party very late, but there's been some, you know, understanding through the market and through various people playing that if you want a particular audience that will come back and remain loyal to these games but not be completely obsessive about these games, then this is the mm. perfect space to do it in. And what rules are there, what rules mm-hmm. kind of flutter backwards and forwards if there's a you know straight line between role-playing games and war games? There's going to be some collection of these things which meet in the skirmish game. It's not always going to be heavily weighted in either direction. Sometimes there are going to be missing rules, which is... What interested me reading through the Victorian mm. London rules was that there were clearly rules that were missing. Like there were mm. clearly arbitrations and points of interaction that would require house rules, which I thought was wonderful mm. from my perspective mm. and critical. Mm. This is the distinction, perhaps, also. And we should, there are so many games in the space as well. Many mm. down to the, you know, minutiae of rules, the thick rule books, which you really don't need for a skirmish game. The thicker the rule book, the more mm. obscene it is, really, with a skirmish game. But, you know, you've got thick rule book skirmish games where absolutely everything is specified and everything's written out in extensive, you know, what have you. Mm. And then you've got the thin rule book skirmish games. The Victorian London rules that I have, which I should have close so I can actually quote them, maybe 48 pages at most of small book, not large book. Okay. So I think the length of rules is another important point, which we've not really discussed, mm. for these kind of games. Mm. You don't want... D and D sized rule books. You want something that's thin, easy to flip through, point two and play. Yeah. When 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 I first when when I first spoke to you on the podcast, I I talked a bit about the Strontium Dog miniatures mm. game and I and I kind of didn't I, I didn't talk too much about it. I talked more about Inquisitor. But there's exactly those same gaps in the Strontium Dog uh rules which which allow for some kind of house rule interpretation, which I think is fascinating. You know, even, I don't know if this is the same with these, these Victorian rules that you have. Skills, for example, seem, you could say that they're quite woolly, but what mm. they basically have are skills for the characters that they've included in the game. But they keep saying, well, 
you can have your own ones or, you know, you can do it your own way. That's really interesting because, of course, it, it, it requires you to have some kind of a conversation with your, your co-player about what seems fair or balanced or good fun even you know we've talked about that maybe is it it's better to have fun than to get balanced you know what what makes a, a fun session so th- that's that's really I, I find that very inspiring and that would even come back to this issue of empowerment that you have that you're you're almost saying i think that the if you have a good slim rule rule set it allows for that empowerment to seep back in when you start to engage with it and play it yes. compared to something which which is going to just make you feel like you're failing the whole time and just getting things wrong and wrong and wrong when it's so detailed and concrete in every aspect. One of the things that I liked mm. about the set of miniatures that I picked up from Neptune Comics and Games was that the orcs are relatively uniform. They have mm-hmm. you know sluggers and hand weapons. The humans are the mm-hmm. tricksy things. They're the ones with explosives and, you know, different kinds of, a couple of different kinds of weapons. And what interests mm-hmm. me is that that in and of itself kind of distills the two races, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think within that, in terms of on one side, some degree of rules, on the other side, just wave of green, you know, there are ways <laughs> in which you can explore these things. And what, what I think the other, I mean, the Victorian rule system, to be frank, originally I was going to play un, un, you know, werewolf vampire esque. My mm-hmm. players said to me quite strongly that if it didn't have vampires in it, they weren't going to play. So that made it very clear. But okay, I think what I find fascinating with the zombies, for example, is that there is a the us versus them. You're not dealing with us, you know, us and them are very different in these games. And I think that's mm. particularly interesting, and just like Chaos, less so, right? Basically, similar mm-hmm. kinds of humans, some kind of modific- very minor stat modifications, but basically playing against something that is similar enough to you to be, you know, comparable. And mm. I think that's another mm-hmm. dynamic in the skirmish game, which I find fascinating. When you have skirmish games with even opposition that is the same as you, basically, in mm-hmm. terms of stats, versus the zombie apocalypse, where the opponents are very different. And actually faceless mm. in this case. Mm-hmm. So the no- mm-hmm. the nature of a game that requires players to come together, whether the same kind of players or players to come together and a GM mm. in, within a skirmish mm. game creates an interesting dynamic that I wanted to just leave you with as a topic to talk about when we next speak. Mm. <laughs> just to think mm. about in, in in broader kind of space. One thing the, I want the GM, to the say, role of the GM, yeah. right? That's, that's well, yeah, well good, actually, yeah. the, the player experience when they are not actually in direct conflict with another player. So there are these games where players yeah. are in direct conflict, and actually, quite beautifully, as I have been narrating in this podcast associated with the archetypal Warhammer Forty Thousand tournament player, I am subscribed to Frontline mm. Gaming on YouTube. They also paint portion of my miniatures in some cases rather slowly but still they paint them and mm-hmm. what is fascinating is they now do tournaments on youtube now we have a, an apple tv downstairs i just put my wife was doing something we were about to watch the tolkien movie which is another topic that i wanted to raise i just put it on and was just watching these two gentlemen in temecula in southern california which is near where my in-laws live they were playing a civilized game of warhammer Forty Thousand which was really <laughs> wonderful to watch. It was wonderful to watch because there were nuances, there was a lot of discussion. There was discussion particularly when someone accidentally moved or rolled incorrectly or, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to start a moving infantry and then wanted to move a tank and had a wonderful discussion with the player, with his opponent associated with, would that be okay? I mean, this was a civilised game of Warhammer 40,000, which was actually a real pleasure to watch. So mm. I, I want to say that the opponent versus opponent, same kind of stuff, point matched, evened out games, could still be mm. something that convey nuances that I wanted to represent positively in this podcast. So mm. it's fascinating actually to see that because certainly my experience, the best games of Warhammer 40,000 that I've played have been like that. And whenever I've seen mm-hmm. any twinges of aggressive tournament play, I've kind of stepped away from the game and, you know, spent, in some case, many years mm. not playing the game going forward. But it is interesting, the dynamic between opposing players versus 
a group of players that are collectively, you know, bound on fighting and opposing foe. Yeah. Different, different things psychologically. I think there is something interesting about having a team where each player has one character that they're looking after and they're up against the, the game or the, you know, some, some, mm. the game master or the, <laughs> or the, the system itself. There's, there is something, I think there's, I think, yeah, there's more to be done with that for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. I have been rewatching the Lord of the Rings trilogy with my wife through random things that just happened. And we found last night by chance a film loosely based, let me say, <laughs> on the life yeah. of Tolkien which I found fascinating on a number of levels. Now, my favourite book relating to Tolkien was a Ballantine Press, I don't know, it was kind of a, a deep nerd biography of the okay. man. Okay. Ballantine Press, if you're not familiar, I've got a pile of them here, but through the 1960s and 1970s, they were what Osprey is now, except they actually produced... Mm, I don't know, maybe 150, 200 page at most potted histories of various okay. things in the primarily Second World War, but also some stuff in the First World War. I absolutely uh-huh. love them. I discovered them um, actually, I think, seven years ago this week, maybe eight years ago this week, in a bookstore. <laughs> okay. I have this because Facebook gives you updates, and I'm like, uh-huh. seven years ago, well, maybe eight years ago, I was in East Lansing, Michigan, and I stumbled across, you, you occasionally wander into these bookstores if you're a bibliophile, and you realise this is my spirit bookstore, so to speak. And this was one of those experiences. They had a pile of really old model railroaders in the basement, as everything in Michigan does, and they mm. had these Ballantine books, which I, I'm wondering if I had been exposed to them previously. Anyway, they're, they're books that you can hold in your hand uh, associated with a wide variety of very potted histories uh, associated with it. But they also wrote a book on Tolkien, amongst other things. They also had a really... (laughs) There are curious series of books that they also published as well, not for this podcast, but they wrote a book on Tolkien, and it is a For Nerds Eyes deep dive into various vignettes of Tolkien's life, which, strangely enough, came... Have you seen the Tolkien film? No. Okay. No. I'm I'm in two minds of recommending it, or not recommending it. (laughs) It has some very... It's very curious... The way in which the First World War is portrayed now is very similar to a lot of the concerns I have about the way the Second World War is portrayed now. I think increasingly people don't... I mean, I I know people, physical people, that I've interacted with who I would rate on some level as thinking human beings that mm-hmm. don't know the difference between the First and Second World War. Oh, and I think okay. increasingly this... And this is in the US, let me say specifically in the US. Obviously, it wouldn't happen elsewhere. This, I think, is increasingly a phenomenon that people just don't understand the basic distinctions between these two conflicts, which are so different and so important, I think, to understand. Mm-hmm. So when you see the First World War portrayed in the way it was portrayed in the Tolkien film, it is very much mm-hmm. led towards this... I mean, look, they're wearing the right kinds of helmets, they're in trenches. There was one rat made an appearance (laughs) (laughs) but it was very curious it was very abstract in that light and i think without that aspect and also they don't focus on the birmingham period of his life either it was you know it was a ramshackle film Mm -hmm. made for a popular audience as my wife pointed Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. but it did remind me that tolkien is really critical in terms of understanding where we are now and although i would argue that the early war games, particularly the German war games, are mm-hmm. as important and as poorly understood, or even more poorly understood generally. Mm-hmm. I still think it's really fascinating to realise that he was a conduit of so much history, and then he kind of spread it out into popular thought for at least a small period of time. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the man? I read Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast books before mm-hmm. I read Tolkien. And I think that, for me, kind of... That shaped my my idea of what fantasy should be and mm. do. And so I was never... I was never... I've never been terribly impressed with, I suppose, what mm. would you call it, high fantasy. Mm. Um, having said that, the Ralph Bakshi film of Lord of the Rings, I 
I think is fantastic. There's some fantastic sequences in that. And I, you know, and this is, goes back to my whole thing of the anti-narrative attraction, theory of attraction mm. type of thing, where I love the rotoscoping. I love the the fact that you can see these grainy actors that have been kind of, they almost look like they've been, you know, obviously it's ink, but they kind of look, it's got that watercolory mm. feel. It's got that inky feel. And to see the characters kind of um, merge in and out or transform back and forth from being rotoscoped humans to being kind of full, full cartoon characters, mm. I think is fantastic. And some of those backgrounds, um, the opening scene with the kind of uh, cloth, the cloth that's that appears to be over the image at the beginning and that silhouette work which is like Lottie Reinecke mm. that sequence where the ring wraiths come and hack the beds up um there's there's just kind of red backgrounds mm. um so i think there's some fantastic visual stuff in that film which for me then when they did the the, the more recent <laughs> films they you know of course, they looked like was it Alan Lee, the Alan Lee illustrations and all of that. But mm. um, it, I think, the only bit that interested me in the in the the film was when um, is it Frodo's about to chuck the the ring into the into the the volcano, and there was just this I don't know, just this great lighting on his face, the gold and everything, and that 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 I just felt like oh, that was a really good moment but that was you know 30 seconds in mm. god nine knows, hours 30 hours nine really. hours yes um I, but but i but i'm well aware also that that in a sense the the films just went for the story of the, you know the narrative of lord of the rings and they missed out on all of that wonderful kind of lore mm. that Tolkien well the language isn't there generally. obviously i mean i think yeah to be perfectly clear i on a personal level, I read The Hobbit when I was probably about nine, because that's what you had to do, right? I was mm -hmm. a nerd kid of a particular age, and I just picked up this copy and kind of read through it. And the, the Ring books themselves, I think I must have consumed passively, like literally, oh, i got to finish the thing, when I was probably about mm -hmm. 11 or 12. Like, I remember that mm -hmm. they were really burdensome to me and just really dry and obviously it's it's difficult when you grow up in a colony versus growing up in England itself I think and I very much grew up in a colony and mm -hmm. you know the whole I look when I find people that don't like Tolkien but still are so heavily immersed in fantasy lore these are my people these are my kindred spirits because I ultimately agree with these people as well however that being said his importance is unquestionable. Mm. And what he did in terms of popular consciousness alone is unparalleled, I think, in our, you know, broader areas of interest. Mm -hmm. But I think there are important things that need to be maintained associated with his story. Obviously, his early childhood, Birmingham in the later stages of the Industrial Revolution. Maybe, mm -hmm. does one even mm -hmm. say that? I don't know. Whatever the... <laughs> the pre-First mm -hmm. World War Industrial Revolution in Birmingham. And mm -hmm. um, also, his, obviously, his experiences in the First World War, which need to be kind of captured mm -hmm. in kind of distilled chunks to understand. And I think with those things, you can understand a portion of his writing. The language and the law, this is clearly a representation of his coping strategy based on hundreds, if not thousands of years' worth of folklore basically. Mm. And that mm. is interesting as well. The, this notion of folklore as a coping strategy and a means of describing, which ultimately you get the kind mm. of scholastic rewrites of the Bible through this as well. I mean, you get some amazing mm. kind of tapestries of the human mind kind of captured mm. with this one fellow. So mm. I think he's an incredibly important mm. person that is being perhaps misunderstood, perhaps, you know, I think the film at least ticked these boxes for me. And that mm -hmm. is why I think in general, it is probably a good thing rather than a neutral thing or a bad thing in, in kind of popular culture. Mm. But yeah, it was interesting to watch because I thought this is completely different. Like I know you're a, a film 
person as well. The company, well, the company yeah. I work for, made a film about Eichmann's capture. Eichmann okay. is an important person for me for a number of reasons. When I watched this film, I watched it with immense dread because if they missed Eichmann's capture, it was going to be something that would weigh on me sufficient that I would probably raise it within the company and cause trouble for myself. (laughs) So thankfully, I thought, although there were some minuses, generally the pluses were there uh, with regards to Eichmann's capture. I felt the same way with regards to this Tolkien film. Obviously, it would not be as destructive to my, uh, you know, survival if they hadn't made it correctly. But it would be a really curious thing if they couldn't capture the elements. And in that regard, I think it was an interesting film. For you, mm. I would say worth if you if you get it on you know streaming services or these kind of things. Mm. I think it's worth a watch. I, I did see the Beatrix Potter film. I think, mm. <laughs> which 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 to me seems like the you know the obvious double DVD set to have Beatrix Potter, Miss, yes. Miss Potter, or whatever it's called, and and Tolkien. Um, <laughs> make a good make a good a good pairing. And, you know, and I do think, you know, I think in some ways I even to myself, I've kind of over cutesified Beatrix Potter. And actually, some of those stories are really savage and and hilarious. And what is it? The two bad mice. I love the bit where they're trying to eat the doll's food. You know, there's a lovely ham, a miniature ham, and it's ceramic. So they're, (laughs) they're getting really frustrated trying to cut the cut the hams. Um, and then smash it all up. I think so. I think there's some. I think there's some, also some good, you know, good, good rehabilitation that Beatrix Potter needs. Maybe they could do it together. Maybe they could. They could. The sequel to both films could be them kind of meeting each other in another <laughs> dimension or something. Yeah. On the on the with with Madame Blavatsky or something like that. When I was watching the Lord fun. of the Rings films, the thing that struck me was that it was done by New Line Cinema. New Line Cinema mm-hmm. has a wide variety of really curious films in their catalogue. One of the ones mm-hmm. that I, you know, periodically am compelled to see is the film Friday, which seems to me to be the antithesis of Lord of the Rings. But if you took those two films and put it together, in particular Gandalf <laughs> as a kind of linking character, I think there's some elements right. there. One thing I wanted to conclude with, because it is such a controversial topic, but I thought we should at least conclude with this yeah. narrative, as in the broader yeah. discussions I've said the word, ladies and gentlemen, in my rules yeah. better. I wanted to leave you with this little vignette and then let's explore narrative a little bit before we actually finally conclude. Yeah. Picture me, difficult to picture me currently, but picture me age 10, sitting in a yeah. hobbit hole, watching Matthew Gibson of this very podcast perform with his brother in front of me of the okay. evils of Dungeons and Dragons versus the new powerful visionary thing which is RuneQuest. Imagine this. Okay. This goes yeah. on for three hours. No bathroom breaks. Sitting cross-legged towards <laughs> the end. <laughs> this man in his embodiment had such an impact on me in early life that when he tells me that narrative is a bad word that should never be spoken ever again, thank you very much, even today, I will eliminate this word from my vocabulary <laughs> for this particular recording. I think that distills perfectly the history of the term narrative in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's what's so hard is to find a word that that positively defines this other thing than everything that we might call narrative, mm. and that's where this 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 uh, attraction, this the um, cinema of attraction idea in film, or is some kind of thing, but it doesn't really do the job. And so you're always talking about anti. One is always talking of anti-narrative or that which isn't narrative or whatever. But listening back to those early episodes of My Rules Are Better, again, you know, you say something like, narrative is of central importance to me developing these rules. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. He's he's gone from that kind of a position to us now having this debate. There's there's something subtle here. That's amazing. There's something subtle here. Matthew's attack on the word narrative was associated with its meaninglessness and overuse, yeah. which I stand is, is probably both our points as well. And in doing that, what I'm talking about here is folklore, 
imagery, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. words. I mean, it's a bit like the word like. I'm not sure if you've ever experienced this, but, you know, through school <laughs> I would have teachers that would say never use the word like. There are so many descriptive yeah. words around, or the word love, or these kind of things with regards to food and these kind of things. There are too many yeah. words in the language that are better served than using this word like. And mm-hmm. when you start exploring these other words, you start seeing a better, you know, a, a more rich kind of tapestry of descriptive terms. Mm. So I think mm-hmm. that is the challenge for what Matthew said. I was being lazy in my use of narrative. I should have talked about folklore. I should have talked about, mm. you know, strange histories. I should have talked about a variety mm-hmm. of different pieces. And I used an easy word to not describe what I should be describing. That, I think, is the criticism. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, the really interesting thing is this possibility that certain things that people often describe as being narrative elements or associated with narrative actually are better thought about unshackled from that idea. So my my kind of pitch to to anyone who will listen to me bang on about this topic is basically that you get all of the benefits of narrative without needing to pin everything down to a narrative or a story or even a fiction or something like that you know the movement between this imagined realm and the 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 meta discourse you know that doesn't need to be kind of by a a narrative threshold or something like that because it's all part of the whole the whole wonderful mix so this idea of um so when i heard you you know when i heard on the you on the podcast making that kind of assertion and then following that development through i i just felt yes great um here's somebody who's also then take starting from that that position but trying to, you know trying then to kind of reinvent all of those, all of those features. Think about them in a in a way that doesn't require doesn't require that. Um, so I was that was that was a nice that was a nice listening moment for me too. But yes, folk art. I think that's fantastic. I think that's fantastic. And someone like Levi Strauss in this kind of structural analysis of myth and that kind of thing. I think that gets at something like that. That you have these elements, these elements of folk culture. Which which kind of ping around the space and can be configured and reconfigured in different ways, and that's the that's the kind of the ludic um, side to that 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 the production of of folk culture. I I would I would say. Barney, it has been a real pleasure as always. Please continue listening in, taking notes, and returning periodically. Always a pleasure Super. chatting with you. See you, Tom. Talk to you soon. Take care.